0: Hello and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Jabauer. Here with me today is a guest who had a major role in my formation at the seminary, a professor who, if you were lucky enough to be in one of his classes, you'd better have your pencil sharpened and your notepad ready because it was going to be a wild ride from the second class started. My guest is the Reverend Dr. Joel Bierman, who's one of the most highly respected systematicians of our time. Dr. Bierman, I know you're a man of few words when it comes to talking about yourself, but would you please introduce yourself to our listeners and... Explain what a systematician is.
1: Sure. I can do that. Thanks for having me with you on this conversation. It's a pleasure to be with you, Stephanie. And, um, I enjoyed having you in the classroom as long as, as well as your husband, those were, um, fun times a long time ago. <laughs> I teach systematic theology, at the seminary systematic theology allows to the effort to try to express the right teaching of the church in a way that is faithful for the time period in which we live. So in other words, it's trying to interface God's timeless truth with a world and a church that is continually in a dynamic situation. And so you have to find the right way to speak that truth and to emphasize the right parts of that truth. So systematics takes, in a sense, all the truth of what God's put into the world and tries to express it in ways that are easy to grasp and that hold together and then explore the impact and the significance of those ideas for the world in which we live. So that's what I do. I live here in St. Louis. I've been teaching at the SEM now for about 20 years, I guess. Before that, I was a parish pastor for about 10. And so that makes me an old guy now. And my wife and I live here. We've got three kids, all grown, married, and living in the area, which is quite cool. And then I have 10 grandkids around here in the area as well, too. So spend time with all of them. It's, It's a lot of fun.
0: Wow. Wonderful. What a blessing that they're all in the St. Louis area with you.
1: It is, it is great. We um, get together every couple of weeks, everybody together at the house, and it's um, pretty chaotic, but a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> well, if anyone's interested in seeing what your bunch looks like, um, they can go on our social media page. Your picture will be up there with all of your grandchildren, and you have a beautiful family. So and thank I, well, you for thank sharing you. that with us. Yeah, well, let's dive in, Dr. Beerman. My husband, Kirk, is really into the Marvel movies. I am not, but from what I can gather, uh, these movies have characters that live and move in different dimensions or multiverses. So your book, Holy Citizens, discusses what it is to live in two realms or two extensions of the same reality at the same time. Yeah, Can you explain that to us?
1: Well, my, my book, Holy Citizens, was an effort to try to address an important area of systematic theology. One that I think touches on a lot of different things, including questions about life and about just living your life and about caring for those who are marginalized, all sorts of things, all kinds of social issues. So the idea of two realms basically grows out of Luther's own thinking about these sorts of things and his conclusion that God works in the world in two very distinct ways. So the idea of the two realms is really trying to answer the question, how does God work in the world today? And what Luther concluded was God works in one way, according to his, sometimes called his right hand, but he really preferred the term in the spiritual realm or spiritual kingdom or spiritual domain. This is a teaching that has sometimes been called the two kingdoms doctrine, that it has a lot of negative baggage because people assume they know what that means. And it's also been associated with a lot of really bad things in the church history where the church has really dropped the ball and become too, too uninvolved in the world around. And I'm thinking especially about, um, Germany during the rise of Hitler, then the, the third Reich. And, uh, there are too many Lutherans who were using two kingdoms as an excuse to do nothing, which was a terrible disaster. So I think two realms captures the idea in a better way, because it gives us the ability to talk about it in a fresh way. So what Luther said, there's the, there's the spiritual realm. And then there's the temporal realm and the spiritual realm has to do with God caring for people's need for forgiveness and a right relationship with him and to be able to live rightly with the creator. So the spiritual realm is really geared for a relationship between an individual or a person and the creator. Then the temporal realm gets into the question about what's it mean for us to be living in a right relationship with those around us, with the people, The rest of creation, people we encounter in all the relationships we live day day in and day out, that's the temporal realm. And so the temporal realm is where we have things like government and things like art and things like families, marriage, and all that stuff is temporal realm. And the point that Luther drives at then is God cares about both of those. God's very interested in both of those. And he has oversight of both of those. So we already have some interesting thoughts because the temporal realm is not, Opposed to the spiritual realm. They're not at odds with each other. They're not antithetical or separate up in polarity. And neither is one evil and one good. And too many people make that move. They all associate the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And they assume God's kingdom is the church, Satan's kingdom is the world. No, that's just dead wrong. God is the Lord of all creation. Then so the temporal realm and the spiritual realm of both is concerned. So then God uses the church and the spiritual realm to deliver the gospel deliver the goods, deliver the forgiveness of sins, focus on that relationship with the creator. And he uses government, government civil leader, leaders to make sure that the temporal realm is working the way he wants it to work and it's according to his plan. That's the ideal. Uh, we know in by, in reality that because human beings are tasked with these jobs in the church and in the government, we don't always do the job very well. And so sometimes the church will fall short and sometimes the government will, will fall short. And yet it is still God's government and God's church, and God holds both to his expectation of what he wants him to do and desires for those things to happen. So the relationship between the temporal realm and the spiritual realm is not one of animosity, but it is one of mutual accountability and encouraging and supporting each to function well in the way it should. That's sort of the basic idea of how the two realms works.
0: Okay, thanks. So we have that groundwork. Laid for us. So I would encourage anybody to pick up your book, Holy Citizens, so that they could delve further into that. But you just gave a beautifully concise explanation of what Lutherans believe on the two realms. And thank you also for clarifying the two kingdoms as well and why it may be better for us to use realm or domain or even left or right hands in our modern time.
1: Yeah. I try to do that pretty consistently. When I, I, people use this, though, the Default to two kingdoms, but well, it's got a lot of a lot of bad baggage with it. And Dr. Cole is the one who kind of taught me two realms, is probably the better way to go. And I, I think he's right about that. So I try to do that pretty consistently.
0: And Dr. Cole, being another professor at the seminary, who in his own right has a league of books. <laughs> oh,
1: oh my! Now, there's an yeah. author. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah, you know, Bob just cranks him out, and he's, he's <laughs> and he's always entertaining in his writing and in his personal interactions. He's just a delight.
0: Just a, a fun little aside that my husband uh, used to live with Dr. Kolb in his upstairs apartment during our seminary year. That? Kirk did that. There's yep. a
1: long history of guys who've done that. I didn't know Kirk was one of them. That's that's a singular achievement. My goodness.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh yeah. and So it brings up so many memories, but thank you, Dr. Kolb, for letting us uh, save money that way too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure he took advantage of the situation as, as well. I'm did a few jobs around the house. I'm, I'm quite confident.
0: It's true. Yeah. So you know, you mentioned, of course, that the government is part of what we would consider the left or the temporal realm. And I think even with when we say the government, that has an especially heavy baggage today. Yep. How is the Christian supposed to come to terms with that? This whole idea, especially in this divisive political landscape that we live in, uh, if we're talking about a culture, society, government all in the, the temporal realm that often is at odds with God's will. So what do Christians do with that?
1: Yeah, the, the, we, we sometimes think, well, in Luther's day, the Christians and the or, or the government was all Christian. And so this was not a big deal. And they, they, it was different then. This doesn't apply anymore. That's wrong. It absolutely applies. The teaching absolutely applies. It's still God's government. Even if the government's pushing back against God, it's still God's government. And it's always helpful to remember that the foundation and most most of what Luther taught on this, well, all of it is the foundation is the scriptures, but the specific text he had in mind was Romans 13, and then the passages in 1 Peter 2. Because in Romans 13, God makes it very clear that the government is put there by God. And he even calls the government leaders, God's ministers. It's the word he uses. They're ministers of God for your good. But what's fascinating to remember, of course, is that Paul has in mind the Roman emperor, that's who he has in mind. And the emperor when Paul was writing was Nero, who turned out to be no friend of Christians, and yet Paul doesn't change his mind because, oh, they're bad people. They're not moral. No, they're not Christian. They're not particularly moral, but they're still God's servants and still God uses them sometimes in spite of themselves. And that's the beauty of how God works in the world, does what he needs to do regardless. So. Christian's attitude towards government should not be expecting it to be perfect, holy, even moral. We kind of expect the worst from it. And yet, we pray for it, support when we can, work with it, try to shape it, and we're engaged in it. We, we care, we're involved, it's part of our responsibility, but we also have realistic attitudes toward it. We're not surprised when it does bad things. We're not surprised when it becomes immoral. And especially if we're paying attention to the culture in which we live, we're not surprised when it builds everything around individual human rights and thinks that's the way to decide things. That's how it works. And so we as Christians need to be a little more savvy and kind of realize what's going on there. But then we also don't look to the government to solve our problems for us or to fix things. We, we're we realistic, they're not gonna do that. They're, they're not there to make our lives better or to um, solve the problems we have with what's wrong in the world today. Uh, Government typically is not capable of doing that very well. So I think Christians need to have a little more realistic attitude toward the government, the responsibility toward, it and the role in it. I mean, talk in the book at some length, like the fact that in a democratic republic in which we live, it's kind of interesting because in a very real sense, each of us is the government. In the sense, we get to participate and vote it and we we have a role. And so that means that we can't shirk that. We need to take that responsibility seriously. We need to vote. We need to pay attention to how we vote. Uh, I make the case that you can sin by how you vote. Voting is not neutral. It's not like I have my church life, follow God, love my family, and then I've got this government stuff. No, it's all one piece. It's all God's reality. And I live my Christian life in the temporal realm, in all the areas of the temporal realm, my family, my work, my government my interactions with my neighbors, all of it needs to reflect who I am in Christ. And so I do get involved in the government. I do get involved in the temporal realm. I do it in ways that honor Christ. And I have a, a realistic attitude about what I can accomplish there, what I should expect in return. And that's how I would function.
0: Well, let's get to an even deeper level of practicality. And you you know, started off by explaining how systematics is applying our theology to today in today's landscape. Yeah. Most recently, we had Roe v. Wade overturned. Anybody who's turning on a TV or opening up a newspaper can see the polarization of that decision. And so there's some people whose stomachs drop upon hearing that news and and some people who celebrate. And my question then is, for those people who have such a volatile <laughs> emotional response to anything going on in politics and the government. How tied to that should we really be? Uh, or would you encourage us to spend our energy elsewhere?
1: Yeah, you, you you asked a great question, Stephanie. You set me up these perfect softballs as a good interviewer. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, I I get what you're asking and, and your 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 intimation is quite right. This is what I was getting at when I said we had a realistic attitude toward the government. Now. So Roe v. Wade gets overturned, and it happened in June. I remember, you know, so well. Uh, and the the response—I was at a gathering at that time, and everybody was like, oh, "This was great." We even sang the "I uh, Got or something, you know, just you know, in, in gratitude for what uh, for this this event, which is something that people in the church have been praying for and working for for decades and decades, and most often, it would never happen. But God brought it about. It happened. Um. Now, what we're seeing, though, is the um, kind of the downfall the of this and the, the ramifications. And as you said, the world has just gone apoplectic about this. They, they can't believe this has happened. This is just unreal. It's like we're going back to the primitive stone age. What's wrong with us? We should know better. And, and we're not surprised by that. But I think the thing that maybe is catching some Christians by surprise is the fact that most Americans seem to think, yeah, it's a problem. And we see the polling and we realize that it's not even a slim majority, it's up into the 60 percentile are thinking, well, yeah, this is a woman's right. we got to get that straight down. I never wanted Roe v. Wade to be taken away. Come on. You know, we got to, we got to like take care of kids. Sure. But oh, we don't want to infringe on woman's rights. And see, now that exposes the real issue here. And. Part of the problem, I think, with the whole Roe v. Wade mentality of the church was we kind of had put so many eggs in that basket and that was just everything. We've got to get it overturned. Got to get it overturned. Work for it for Get the right people elected. We'll get it done. Okay, it's done. But we haven't really affected the real issue, which is how people think about it and how people perceive it. And there is a much bigger, much more complicated problem because that's not just an issue of changing perceptions and changing minds and our rhetoric needs to be about children and loving children. Yeah, we've done that really well too, but we haven't changed the fundamental issue, which is what people believe is right and what's moral. And that's the bigger problem we've got because living in the West, the American continent and the whole American experiment being part of the Western push of things, which came into existence, of course, thousands of years ago with Greece and the whole trajectory through Europe and the whole Western way of thinking, that whole way of thinking is in a very different place than most of us maybe assume it is. I mean, most of us, meaning those of us in the church, those of us with more conservative uh, ways of looking at things, we sometimes get surprised at how messed up things are in the world, but that shouldn't surprise us either. And that's where we need to have the realism coming in to recognize what the actual temperature of the culture is in which we live, what we should expect from it and what we see going on. And that's where I think we need to be a whole lot more sober about the score and about what's really going on.
0: Mm. So what should we expect? Well, let's talk
1: about that. Um <laughs> and this is one of my I enjoy talking about this because I think it surprises people to kind of get a grasp of what's going on about what we should expect. But we need to back up a little bit and just kind of get a grounding where is the culture and why, what's going on in the culture? A lot of people look around and they say, oh man, things are really messed up. You know, boy, we've got some really bad stuff going on. We've got this on demand. Well, now we don't. In lot last states, we still do um, here, here in St. Louis. So Missouri had a trigger law. So now pretty much it's all wiped out and Planned Parenthood is not having much business. But good news, right across the river in the Mississippi, you can go over to Illinois. And it's the land that welcomes you. And in fact, they have great big billboards when you cross the river, welcome to Illinois, where you can get a safe legal abortion and they're marketing it. It's, it's like, this is what you come to Illinois for. And, and they're, they're proud of it. It's well, they, the people who are putting the billboards up and those who are, you know, this is Illinois and Planned Parenthood just built an enormous, huge brand new clinic just across the river in Belleville. So it's serving. All the people in the St. Louis area, the whole metro area, and people from all around. And they made the move because they saw the handwriting on the wall. Missouri's not going that direction. Illinois is. Everything just keeps on cranking along full blast. But now you have to drive across the river to get your abortion. So we have these trigger laws that came into play. And people thought, great, we've got rid of the we got rid of this problem. But as I said, the real issues are still at work because the real issues are how people think about this and how people perceive this. And that hasn't changed because the whole Western Gestalt is premised on the the inviolability and the importance of my individual rights. And you see, what's so ironic is that so much of this fighting that we did to try to get Roe v. Wade overturned was done in the context of rights. In fact, we have the right to life. And so the foundation becomes the rights of things. And so we built this argument on, well, an unborn child has rights, and those rights can't be violated, and so we've got to protect those rights. So a woman has rights, so does this child, and so we try to make a case there, and that makes sense because that's how our world thinks, and we made some good headway there. Because if a woman's got rights, well, what about a child? That child's got rights. Oh, yeah, good point. So now how do we balance those? So now it becomes a question of balancing the rights, figuring out. How old does a kid have to be before his rights start? When does he actually become a person? When do you get your rights? And well, how, how where do those rights end? And a woman's rights start, and that's what's been going on forever. And see, that's because we live in a culture that is premised on rights. So when people say, "Yeah, there's something wrong with the culture," man, it's just a mess. We got this abortion thing, and then oh, look at all the sexuality issues. We got LGBTQIA plus going nuts and we got sexual dysphoria going on and we got people demanding transgender stuff it's it's just a messed up world and we can't figure out how do we get in here and so then you get people in the church saying what we need to do is we need to get back to our roots back to our our traditions back to our godly foundation we just got to get back to our roots the problem is the roots are godly or right or well-founded The roots of our country, the roots of the West are premised on the individual rights. The individual is the supreme thing. And so, my rights, my ability to do what I want, my personal integrity, my autonomy, those are the sacred things in our culture. In fact, I would argue, and I have made this case, that the last thing that is sacred in the culture in which we live is the individual. The individual being true to himself. True to herself. No one telling me what to do, no one forcing me to do. I am my own person. That's fully and sacred. And the proof I have is this is look how the world responds when some person comes out and says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And so from now on, I want you all to call me by my new name and treat me like I'm really the woman that I know I am. And you might think I'm a guy, and I have been for a long time, but I'm actually a woman. That's who I am. So how does the world respond to that? Good for you. You are so brave. You are so courageous. Awesome. And they'll call it by the their name and we play along with the whole charade and we act the emperor is wearing clothes and we do it because that's what that person needs. And they're not hurting anybody else. So of course we're going to affirm that because that's their right. And those of us with traditional morality are left stretching our head. How did that happen? Well, it happened because we made a big emphasis on rights and we acted like the individual gets to decide, and the individual is God. And if the individual is God, whatever they think is fine, so long as they're not hurting anybody or stepping on anybody's toes. And so then the question is, well, how much sexual license can we allow? Well, a whole lot more than we thought. And that's troubling to us. So that what's wrong in the world is not that we have let go of our traditional morality. What's wrong in the world is we had the wrong foundation for our Western culture, because the foundation of Western culture is the enlightened individual who is pursuing his own destiny choosing what's important to him not being beholden to anybody nobody's going to tell me what to do I'm nobody's slave I am my own personal autonomous person doing what I want to do and that's what I'm going to do and so that's what we've got we've got people insisting on their right to have sex with whom they want insisting on their right to have love to love who they want insisting on their right to marry who they want And this thing on the right to adopt the kids they want, have kids that they want, and to have the right over their own body. Sure, my body, I have rights over my own body. And so that's what's driving our culture today. So then when you have a woman whose very autonomy is being threatened because somebody is telling her that she has to carry a child in her body, it's her body. Nobody gets to tell me what to do with my body, my uterus. Shame on them. And that's where we're now to the point in our culture where it's actually immoral to be anti-abortion because abortion is the unfortunate reality we have to accept if we're going to let a woman be autonomous, and we have to, or we're violating her sacred rights. So she has to be autonomous. And now we've got to think what can we do about this kid? Oh, let's try to figure out this, this, this kind of dilemma here. But it makes no sense if we're going to do the whole thing on rights because we just don't have a leg to stand on that's why the right christian attitude to all this should be it's not an issue of rights it's an issue of the gift god has given every single one of us has life as a gift from god not my right i have no right to my life i have no right to my home. i have no right to property i have no right to happiness i have no right to pursue happiness all of those are gifts to me from god and christians don't function with this insistence on rights, 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 rights. That's how the world works. We operate with grace. Grace is not something you demand. Grace is not something you expect. It's gift. That's what the meat word means. Charis means gift. So God gives gifts and we simply receive them. So the foundation of right Christian thinking about all of this topic is not going out in the world and fighting for my rights, but it's going out in the world and living as a witness to the reality of God who gives gifts, and we simply receive them. And I just now, in the space of five minutes, dumped all kinds of stuff from all over the place and made a huge mishmash of all this. But I, I try to think about how all this hangs together and trying to convey that in a way that makes sense. But there's a lot of loose ends I'm opening up here, and I get that. So I'll let you pursue what you think needs to be pursued.
0: Well, uh, thank you for articulating what was also going on in my head at the same time, as in uh, there's so much that you've given us to, to ponder and think on. And uh, also as a, a systematician yourself, you're wanting to tie together some loose ends. And I oh, appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> First and foremost, we do not live in a theocracy, obviously, uh, especially here in the West, which is right. where most of our listeners are. And so- What do we do with that? Because as you said, the temporal realm, that's God's, as well as the spiritual realm. One is not bad, but we find ourselves living as citizens in both.
1: Correct. And
0: if the government is based on this fundamental attitude of the individual is supreme, personal autonomy, rights, 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 then how do we function as people of both realms, so in the spiritual domain, emphasizing grace, emphasizing gift language, but now we also are in this temporal realm right. where a majority of people can't conceive that or don't agree. So we're we're it feels like we're stuck. Yes. So <laughs> is it just the job of Christians to hopefully outnumber or outwin other people in the temporal realm who differ? on this or how are we faithful in this kind of environment?
1: That's great question. So you're asking the hard question of, so faced with the reality that we've got, what are we supposed to do? We don't live in a theocracy and a theocracy, you might say, that'd be great. God's in control. Well, yeah, yeah." and that's, that's ideal. And that's what God wants. He wanted Israel to live that way. I'm your God, you're my people, we're good here. And then they say, well, I think we want a king. You don't want a king, Uh, we do. And so then we have the idea that kings or tyrants or oligarchs or democratically elected officials become kind of the stand in for God. They take care of stuff and God allows that, but God's still in control. We need to remember that God's still in control. This is his world. So the bigger question then really is if God has made me his child through baptism, Put me into this thing called the church, which is his incarnate presence in the world today, his body in the world today, his way of being active. What do I do as a Christian and as a member of the church, as this Christian church? What is What do we do for the world? What do we owe the world? And so let me kind of really drive that home. And then we'll think about how this integrates even more. So I would say that the primary task for the church in the world today is to give the world a crystal clear picture, a witness of what God intends for his people. So in other words, we should be busy in our families, living God's way, raising our kids God's way, teaching them to live outside of themselves, not serving themselves, not promoting themselves, not making life better for themselves, but there to serve others. This is the primary focus of Christian life. Luther covers this beautifully in his little essay, Freedom of the Christian from 1520. And he says in there that the Christian lives outside of himself in faith toward God and in love toward his neighbor. And so that captures the whole of the Christian life. We receive from God and then we live outside of ourselves for those around us. So Christian families should be living like that, living as places of service to one another and to the world around, not of trying to enhance ourselves, promote our own interests or trying to make my life better and trying to make things nicer for me and my family, Service for those around us. The church has a similar thing. The church needs to witness a greater reality of God. We are people who forgive each other. We are people who encourage each other. We are people who look out for each other. What was the early church known for? See how they love one another. So the church needs to be this outpost in the world that actually exemplifies a way of living different than the world. Instead of living for self, self self-promotion, my rights, demanding what I want, negotiating how to work out my rights with other people's rights, we live in a self-sacrificing way of giving ourselves, dying to ourselves, turning in the cheek, taking up our cross, giving, going the extra mile. We do that kind of stuff all the time. And in doing that, we give the world a witness that you guys are different. You guys are really odd. And that's exactly right. We are different. We are odd. And we give a witness that is undeniable to the world. That's the beautiful thing that we do for the world. And so we can do that all the time. We can do that when they're arresting us and throwing us in jail, which is what the early church did. We can do that when we are actually the majority and we get to establish the laws. So what kind of laws do we establish? What's well, that honor God? One that serve people, one that help them marginalize. And so it's not such an issue of self-made man. That's not a Christian idea. And it's not the idea of a, Leave me alone. Let me do what I want. I have freedom to do what I want. That's not a Christian idea either. Freedom, Christian defined, would be living in God's will, which means God tells you what to do. So that's what the church, in a sense, owes the world is that kind of bright, clear witness. We can't always give that witness. Now, does that mean we also engage the government? Of course. So do we try to get good people elected? Right. Well, what is defined as good? somebody who is going to more nearly adhere to God's will for how the world was supposed to function. There is a moral desire God has for the world. There is a right and wrong. And right would be a man and a woman together, raising family. Right would be not stealing people who don't, you know, taking stuff that's not mine. Right would be not killing. So we know what right is. It looks like the 10 commandments and we should be encouraging people to live that way because when they live that way, things are better things work better. It's good. You actually thrive. You actually live into God's purposes. So that's what the church, I would say, owes the world. And the cool thing is we can do that in any environment, in any context, even if they take away my rights, even if they say you can't worship anymore, we'll still do it. And if they say, well, they're going to throw you in jail, we'll get thrown in jail. That's what the early church did. We're not going to stop being Christian. And that's the beauty of following Christ. We always get to give that witness.
0: What you're proposing is hard, and it's harder than most Christians realize they have to do. Because not only are you telling us we have to be faithful according to God's will, of course, as the church in offering the means of grace, preaching forgiveness, extending uh, forgiveness and grace to those around us. (laughs) We also have to... Turn around and do the same thing within our own families, within our own community, within our local government, within our national government. There's so many layers to this that all have to hold together. And I would imagine most American Christians today feel like they've done a decent job thus far until you've proposed, well, we have to be faithful in literally all spheres of our life, the government, you know, civil law, our society, it all is connected with the plan that God has laid out for us in our individual lives as well. And so the next question that I have would be, <laughs> what is the Christian's role then in legislation and trying to legislate God's will, even when the secular world feels that that's not appropriate? Yeah. Um, that we shouldn't be legislating our religion, our Christian morals and values, even this Christian gift language. There's a lot of questions there, but yep, I need a little bit more direction so that I can leave today and feel like I know what I'm supposed to do.
1: That's 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 fair, and I that you're you're good to ask that. I'll get to that. I want to affirm something you said at the very beginning of your, your question, your thoughts there. You said this is hard. Yeah, it's hard. This is hard. It's see, this is why I think it's, it's a lot easier to write a check and send it off to a right to life group or to a homeless shelter. There did my thing. A lot easier to offer a prayer in Sunday morning, but the idea of actually living out my life of service to others and learning and learning that the, the witness that God calls me to give and actually following Christ in my life consistently, Going to put me at odds with the American culture. That's hard. And we have lived in our American Christian happy relationship for a long time, a couple of centuries, where it kind of got along pretty well. And then in the late 20th century, it started to break down a little bit. People were kind of holding it together and trying to just get back to what we used to have and we could get this fixed. And what we're realizing now is now the trajectories we are on are completely opposite. And so the American culture is going to get more and more what it's like. Individuals doing their own thing and people doing their own rights. And Christians are saying, wait a minute, I I don't want to support that. No, you don't. And you can't. And so we're not going to be able to reconcile this. So it's going to get harder and harder for us to actually witness to the truth of Christ in a world that doesn't want to hear it, but needs to hear it. Because what we have to remember is the world does not have answers to the big questions like, What's the point of all this? What am I here for? So I'm a, my own God, but why? What does it matter? What's the perp- What's the meaning? And the, the the need for meaning in life is the, the big problem the world's got. And they don't have an answer to that. And you and the people having just better, richer, faster, longer retirements there, that's the meaning of life. Then that ends and then what's the point? They're not sure anymore. No, why have kids? I don't know. Why get married? I don't know. Why bother with anybody? I don't know what's the point. No one's really sure they don't know. And that's, that's the big problem of modern Western man is we got rid of God and got rid of all that nasty church rules, but we forgot that we're knocking out every foundation along the process. Now we don't even know what we're here for. And the hardcore Darwinists would say, you're here for nothing. Well, then you're to the existentialists and why not commit suicide and just be done with it? Why put, why continue to suffer? And there's no good answer. They don't have an answer. So, living the Christian life is giving an answer, and that's encouraging, but it's hard because it makes us weird, and most, especially Missouri Sinai people, don't like being weird. And that's what we're called to be. So, this is hard. Um, Now, on the concrete specifics, what's this look like? Well, it looks like, I pay attention to what's going on in the government and in legislation. And can we change people's behavior with legislation? yes can we change their minds with legislation probably not um but yes you can change behavior and these you know people sometimes say you can't legislate morality which is nonsense of course you can't you you can make people do the right thing by just making this the consequences bad enough you know if you're gonna kill somebody for stealing people are gonna stop stealing right are not they're, you know have a few people who will try but most people oh, i'm gonna touch that so you could absolutely legislate morality so, the question is, what kind of morality do you legislate? Christians want nothing less than God's morality. We want every single person alive living according to the Ten Commandments. And does that mean I'm forcing Christian morality on them? No, I'm just encouraging them to live according to the re- rules that God built into the world. It's just the way it works. There is a natural law, and I'm a big believer in natural law. There is a, but it doesn't mean everybody knows it, everybody's going to follow it. No, it just means there's a truth God hardwired into the world it's the way it works. It's like gravity. It's like the second law of uh, motion, You know the laws of motion, the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, these are just rules about how the world works. It's just the way it is. Morality is the same way. It's just the way it is. And if you live with it, things go better. You live against it, things don't work so well. And so we need to recognize that God's morality is not an arbitrary forced Christian morality and trying to shove down somebody's throat. I'm encouraging people to live in tune with God, God's will that's just wired into things. So I do want that morality. Now, in the nitty-gritty of real life, where I don't have Christians in majority, I have to figure out what I can do. And so I take what I can get. And so maybe we have laws that are not great, but better than they were. So we do that kind of stuff. And in the temporal realm, you do compromise and you get dirty and you get messy and you make deals that feel a little bit slimy, but you kind of have to sometimes in the temporal realm. And that's how it works. But we still know God's truth and we keep on striving for that and living our own lives that way, raising our own families that way, helping our congregations live that way and doing what we can in the world. But the idea of saving America, no, that's not going to happen. And the idea of uh, getting people to be moral again, that's not going to happen. And that's not my job. And that's not my task. I don't have to carry that burden. It's not the church's job to save America. It's the church's job to be faithful to witness to Christ. It's not my my job in my family to try to save my neighborhood. No, my job is to raise my family faithfully and to witness to the world around. Me. I care about them. I pray for them. I witness the truth of Christ whenever I can to whoever will listen. And I try to bring them to know God's grace as well. So I'm not trying to pour water on the evangelistic enterprise. Quite the opposite. I want people very zealously speaking of Christ's truth, but I recognize that saving the country or changing the moral fabric of the country that's god's business and that's best going to happen through the faithful witness of the church one last specific i would suggest if you know what should i do how do i get involved i'm i'm becoming an increasing fan of this uh, a real core part of catholic moral theology which is this premise of subsidiarity and subsidiarity is the idea of looking and functioning at the smallest local level and so the, the premise there is the best government is the one that's the smallest and the closest to what's going on. So local government really does matter. And getting involved in like a local school board or a local government and just, you know, like, well, this government, there's no big decisions are being made there. Yeah, there are. There are decisions that get made. There are directions that get made. And so getting involved in a subsidiarity thing, in other words, small level, take care of what you can. Make a difference where you can. We tend to get much more fired up and interested in big national issues because those are more interesting and the media talks about it. Everybody gets all excited about it. But our impact there is pretty minimal. And really, even in the impact of the national on my life is much more, much less than the kind of things that happen on a local level. So I would encourage Christians who are feeling the desire to get involved in the world around, to be involved in in the small issues, the subsidiarity issues. And that's where you have to also be careful thinking about I want to become an activist. I'm going to be active in my local community. Great. Well, what's that mean? Does that mean you're fighting for your personal rights? You're fighting for the church's rights. You're trying to stop, you know, the corruption of the, of the society. Yeah, you can work for some of those things, but I think the better way to be an activist is I'm an activist by um, caring for the marginalized. I'm an activist by trying to do what I can for the people who are really suffering because the society has left them behind. There are people like that. We do have poor people. We do have disenfranchised people. They're real. And it's not just the bleeding heart liberals who should be caring for them. Church should be doing that. And as Christians and as conservative Christians, we should be doing that. We need to be doing that, I think, a lot more aggressively with a lot more zeal because it's what God calls us to do.
0: Finally, where is our hope? Where is our encouragement for people listening who feel heavy with the weight of the responsibilities that we have. we've already talked about that. This is hard, but what's our encouragement? And obviously we we look forward to Jesus coming back, but where's the hope also in the here and now?
1: Yes. Well, there isn't great encouragement and you brought up Christ's return and the eschatological encouragement is the bottom line. Christ is coming again. This is his world. This is his creation. And he's coming not to wipe out and destroy the world, He's coming to reclaim it and to remake it and to make it beautiful again as he designed it. Sin has corrupted it. We live in a corrupt, messed up world. People groveling for their rights, people asserting themselves, people trampling over others on the way to make their lives better. That's the result of sin. And we pulled it down on ourselves when we violated God's will and did our own thing. We've been living with the consequences ever since. So it is a messed up world, no doubt, but it's God's world. He's going to get it back. He already has. Christ has come. Christ has died and risen and ascended. And he's ruling right now over everything. It's his world. We can be quite confident in that. And we can kind of delight in that. And so in a sense, because of that, we look at a lot of what happens in the political realm and the world with a certain distance, almost like we're participating, but our hope isn't there. We're not expecting the world to turn around and get fixed. Christ only can do that. And that allows us, and this is going to sound kind of almost crass, but I'll say it here, even towards the end, allows us to be participants of the political realm, almost with an entertainment sort of attitude. To me, national politics is better than sports because it's just so entertaining. And people say, yeah, but so much depends on it. Yeah, but not really because God's still in control and Christ is going to return. When he's ready, he'll come back. And in the meantime, I can be faithful no matter what the government does. So they raise my taxes, fine, I pay more. I have to change my standard of living. Oh, well, I can still love my kids and I can still be faithful. And no matter what is done to me or what the government does, I can still be faithful. And that's not gonna change. So that's encouraging. I get to follow Christ no matter what. And Christ is Lord. He's my Lord. He's the world's Lord. So that's where our hope comes in. And that the hope also comes in and the comfort also comes in because every day I get to wake up and think, oh, what's going on today? Oh, I've got things to do to serve those around me. I guess I can go do that. And I'm God's child. God has claimed me. I've got his grace. I know who I am. I know what I'm here for. That's pretty cool. That's inco- That's comforting. That's encouraging. I know where I fit. I'm God's own child. He's claimed me. And I live by his grace. There's great joy in that. So while I paint a very bleak picture of the world around, and I have, frankly, no hope for America turning around or getting better. I I just don't. And I think that's a a foolish position to have. I think it's unrealistic. It's not based in reality. It's not even a Christian position. So while I have a very bleak view of America and of the West, I have no idea where it's going to go, what's going to happen, but it doesn't really matter because I know what matters. I'm, I'm Christ. I belong to him. He's, he's my Lord. He's my savior and I'm following him and he's going to lead me and he's going to take care of me, my congregation, my family. I'm sure of that. And so I will strive with all I've got to keep instilling that confidence and that joy in my own family, in my students, in the people in my congregation, the people I interact with, because that's where joy comes in. And I can make a difference there and I'll do that. And I'll pray for my country and I'll keep voting and I'll keep following what's going on and try to make an influence where I can. But that's not my business in a sense. That's finally God's concern and God will take care of it. And I'm okay with that. So there should be no despair here. And there should be there should be none of this, oh my goodness, it's, it's all so serious. We're just down all the time. No, just lighten up, it's God's. And we can have some joy and we should have a ton of joy. And we should celebrate the gifts God does give and delight in what God promises because we're we're a little outpost of this eschatological reality of the fullness that's coming. It is coming. And we we get to share in it now in a little bit. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool.
0: Really, you've segued into another key Lutheran theology that is vocation, which we we yeah. have episodes that focus on vocation and our theology on that. But the the beauty of vocation is is not to let us off the hook from our responsibilities, but instead to rightly place our responsibilities and where our gifts have been given, where our responsibilities have been given, and to to keep those faithful to what God has called us to do in those spheres.
1: Exactly. And vocation is so vitally important. And you're right. I, I, I've i been hitting on that again and again and again because it just permeates everything. And and vocation is so important because vocations aren't self-chosen. We don't go looking around for a cool vocation that we want to do go after. God dumps them on us. He just gives them to us. The vocations that are most determinative of, of who we are and most demanding of us are the ones we didn't pick. Um, you're born into a family and you got vocation as a kid. And yeah, you're gonna have a vocation as sibling if you get you know brothers and sisters. That demands a lot. And a spouse. Oh, I've decided to get married. Yeah, maybe you did. Probably you didn't. I don't know many guys who really decide to get married. It kind of just happens to them. Um, so a woman comes along and says, "You're gonna marry me? Okay, you'll take me? Cool. I'm good with that." And they end up getting married. And How did that happen? They end up having kids. What happened? And I I, I say this and guys just smile like, "Yeah, I know exactly what you mean." It's it's the common it's the common lot. So these things happen to us. So you end up married with kids. That demands everything. You know it. You're raising three little ones. How much is that demanding of you? Everything. How much does it demand of you to be the kind of spouse God calls you to be? Oh, man, everything. And then you think, oh, wait a minute. I've also got abilities and talents and skills that allow me to um, maybe minister to other people. I need to do that too. Yeah. So yeah, you got to start figuring it all out. But you see, your career The thing you do, even doing this podcast, that's part of your vocation, but it's probably not your most important one. I'd say it's absolutely not your most important one. Most important is wife, mother, parishioner, and then you do this. It all fits. And we need to recognize that doing the vocations that God simply drops in our lap, that's outstanding service to neighbor. That's where we do our best witness. That's where we make the most significant impact in the world around us. We have to have the long game in mind here. We're not trying to do stuff for quick victories. We're in this for the long haul. Faithfulness in my generation and instilling in my children and in my grandchildren the foundation that is going to then last into the next generation and the next generation. We got a long, long view here. And that's what faithfulness looks like. It happens in vocations, in the vocations of family, in the vocations of friend, the vocation of coworker. Those are the ones that really matter
0: hmm And unless someone misunderstand us here, uh, we also include the vocation of citizen in the temporal realm as Absolutely. well. So we can't we can't say, oh, I'm not a legislator, so it's not my vocation to That's right. change these laws or work towards changing these laws to be in accordance with God's will. But what you're saying is that we rightly prioritize our vocations. And so we focus uh, primarily on the vocations that God has given us within a family, within our church family, but then also not forget the local civil realm, That's right. the national civil realm as well. And so, you know, something that we constantly were hearing in seminary was to make no pendulum swing too far. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um because it's very tempting to do that, especially yes. in this situation. And what you are calling us to do today and moving forward is to be faithful in the two realms in which we live. And that, again, that's not easy. In fact, it's beyond difficult, but Christians don't look to get the easy way out. They look to be faithful. And often that's the most difficult.
1: You're you saying it so very well. That's, that's exactly right. And you, and this, I'll, I'll stress this too. Yeah, I am an American and I'm grateful to be an American. I know God has blessed me richly, and a lot of countries languish with all kinds of problems. Governance to me really bad. So I don't want to give the idea that, you know, it's all horrible and evil here. No, America is a country that has done a lot of good, and God has accomplished a lot through that. I am grateful and even proud to be an American. And yet I take that with a huge grain of salt, because not everything America stands for is what I agree with as a Christian. But it doesn't mean I walk away from it or ignore it. I invest even more in it. And that's your point. I do have a vocational responsibility as a citizen, and I need to pursue that. No doubt about that. Very well
0: mm-hmm. said. And so, of course, this applies to all issues of life because this is a podcast about life issues. And so you have given us things to think about uh, in terms of abortion, in terms of uh, human sexuality and the expression thereof. Yeah. <laughs> End of life issues with physician-assisted suicide. I mean, this all applies and so as Christians we strive for and we pray for in both realms God's will to be done
1: that's exactly right and we work for it and we do what we can to to address it but recognize that we're we're not the world just gonna is going to be there's going to be this tension here with us and we need to recognize that but we are faithful in our own lives and as a church and we keep investing so that's why churches that really care about these things are going to do things like go and visit people who are sick and dying they're going to do that they're going to care for the unwed mother. They're going to provide support for them. They're not going to, you know, pass laws. We're going to actually invest in the things that matter. We're going to care for the the, the orphaned children or the children that are unwanted. We want them. We need to demonstrate that. In the early church, the church in the early days of the church, Christians were known for the going out and actually adopting the babies that were discarded, that were exposed. Was the technical word that they would use to the Romans kids they don't want, little girls that were born, don't want them, take them out in the woods. Christians go look for them and adopt them. And the, the, the world thought they were nuts. You know, you're wasting all your resources raising a kid nobody wants. It's a child. I want it. That's what the church needs to do today. We need to be doing things God calls us to do, the things the world won't do, and showing the love and the compassion and the care for those who need it from us.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bierman Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Fun stuff to talk about.
0: (laughs) And thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life.